Welcome to Technically Speaking, the official podcast of ETC, a consulting engineering firm serving property managers and building owners for over 35 years. Now, please know, we have no hidden agenda or affiliations. It is our obligation to serve you as your trusted advisor, and we take that responsibility very seriously. But not too seriously for today's podcast, as we share fun stories and information from the challenging construction world. So sit back and enjoy as we discuss helpful ways to correct all kinds of building problems. Here's your host, Joe Shuffleton. Today I'm here talking with Jay O'Neill about brick masonry walls. Jay worked for over 40 years as a mason and an estimator for a major masonry restoration contractor in the D.C. area. In fact, by the time he retired, he was an owner of that company. Jay, thanks for being with me here today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So the typical masonry facing or veneer wall we are talking about today is where the exterior brick is secured or tied into a substrate, like a concrete backup wall or framing made of steel or wood studs that is integrally attached to the main structural system of the building, being columns, beams, and floor slabs. Typically, these walls have a one-inch air cavity behind the brick to help drain water that gets through the wall. In this case, the brick acts as a rain screen to shed most of the water, but inevitably, some gets back behind the brick and into the cavity where it falls to strategically place flashings, such as above windows, that discharge the water back outside the wall through holes called weeps above the flashings. The watchword for this type of wall is, it may look good, but that doesn't mean it is good. A quick example of that would be the vertical joints between the brick. These are called head joints. And if they all form a nice straight line up the building, the building wall looks really good. But if these same head joints are not completely filled with mortar and excess water gets into the wall, it can cause exterior stains and possibly leakage into the building that can be very problematic and expensive to correct. Jay, I know you've seen many problems and issues related to this type of wall. Is there anything that stands out in your mind? Uh, Typically, other than routine maintenance on a veneer, what we've run into frequently is structural failures of the veneer itself. Uh, they typically exhibit themselves in facade cracks, spalled brick, excessive mortar failure, bowed sections of the facade, or in the worst case, brick sections falling to the ground. Water infiltration can lead to structural failures, interior damages, and in some instances, mold issues also. Well, one of the things that I see that causes structural failures, and I think you'll agree, is the inadequate installation of relief or control joints. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. What we're talking about are regularly spaced lines, both vertically and horizontally, in the wall that are filled with caulk or sealant. Now, these joints are spaced typically about every 10 to 15 feet vertically, maybe 20 feet, and horizontally about every 20 to 25 feet. And this is the frequency of installation that the Brick Industry of America recommends. And Jay, you want to explain why these joints are needed? Basically, brick is a component that expands over time due to the fact that it's uh, composed mostly of clay. Um, And typically, the frames they're on can shrink. So you have two opposing forces which need control joints horizontally and vertically to take these changes. 
the horizontal control joints, if not done correctly, will transfer load from floor to floor, which was never intended and potentially result in failure. Uh, the vertical control joints will lead to corner cracking, uh, potentially bowing the wall out, but not as much as horizontal load transfer. You know, I've seen a lot of this, and, and I know architects, and I've talked with architects, they don't like the looks of control joints on a building. It's, you know, they have to fill them with the caulk or the sealant, and it never really matches the color of the mortar that's between the brick, and it tends to break up the sight line. So they're, they're anti-putting the joints in, and, and I've seen them not do it a lot. Um, but typically, if you put the joints in at a proper distance apart, which is normally about every 10 to 20 feet vertically and horizontally about every 20 to 25 feet. All they have to be is about the same width as the mortar joint. And so they fill in and they look pretty decent and it looks like it's a planned part of it. But I've been amazed to see how if the architects don't put them in, that over time, Mother Nature puts those cracks in the wall exactly where the control joint should have been. And it's kind of a difficult thing to fix. How do you fix those things? Uh, it depends on the severity of the cracking. I mean, uh, the best method would be removing the cracked sections of masonry, reinstalling it with the uh, proper control joints. Um, vertically, you would have to free up the brick floor to floor to allow for uh, horizontal expansion. Uh, and that's typically done either by saw cutting under the relief steel uh, and or replacing brick again. So when we're talking about these horizontal control joints, what we're talking about is a joint underneath the relief steel or the shelf angle at the floor slabs. Correct. The, the only issue with that is if, if that horizontal load transfer was due to something more than regular brick expansion and frame shrinkage, um, you'd have to consider that this relief steel was not anchored to this uh, structure to begin with. And we found a lot of that, where the steel isn't even secured and it just laid in there loose. And so you're transferring loads, you know, improperly, not the way you want it to. True. And when you're fixing these cracks because of lack of control joints, we see a lot of them at corners, don't we? We do. Uh, one of the problems we've seen is that we go ahead and try and saw cut a joint in there but one side or the other doesn't have any wall ties in it. And so you've got to put in some type of anchor to secure it, right? Yeah, that typically occurs at building corners where the masons um, didn't put wall ties up to concrete columns. So when you cut a control joint, typically the whole corner of the facade could, could peel away. So you need to determine whether there's uh, tiebacks in those areas or add supplemental ties what kind of supplemental ties have you installed? Now, there's a bunch on the market now. There's expansion anchors that, that go into the substrate and adhere to the brick also with another expansion device. Um, they're typical wall anchors. They go in, depending on uh, the severity of it, maybe 16 inches on center horizontally and vertically. You know, I've seen a lot of um, cracks in parapet walls where normally I would expect to see more control joints because of the, the exposure on both sides of the wall to weather and stuff like that. Have you seen a lot of that? Yeah, parapets tend to run the entire length of the facade, regardless of what facing of the facade there is. Whereas further down the wall, there can potentially be windows that will help take movement without exhibiting the same expansion as a parapet would. 
I'm pretty sure the BIA recommendations for that are something like every 15 feet or something like that, or basically if you've got control joints vertically, basically put one more in between the control joints to help control the cracking of the parapet walls. Yeah, that's possible. I, as far as I'm concerned, you can't have too many control joints. <laughs> well, let's talk about something else. Um, we kind of got into this a little bit with lack of wall ties, and I've seen a number of issues where walls have moved because they're not properly tied in. And you've, you've probably seen that stuff as well. Yep, I've seen some of them move to the ground. <laughs> Without damage, I hope, to people or property. Not that I'm aware of. Not while you were working on them. Not while we were working on them. Have you ever been on one where you actually felt like maybe it was moving and you were concerned about it? Yeah, we we did a a fairly tall building in the Tyson's Corner area that part of the scope of work was to uh, install horizontal relief joints under the steel. And as we were cutting them, the saws were binding, which led us to believe that the steel was not installed correctly. And upon removing sections of the wall, that became the absolute truth. The most unstable I think I've ever seen a wall was I got up on that some brick had fallen. And we put an emergency scaffold up there. And I got up and I touched the wall. I could actually move it. It's surprising how bad a wall has to get before it falls to the ground. And I think that's because of the way the brick and mortar tie into each other and kind of make it a stable issue. Yeah. It's it's hard to say, but the potential for something uh, hazardous to happen is always there. In in an earlier life in my career, when I was working for someone else, we did a lot of research testing in the laboratory for BIA at the time. In fact, we hired some of their people and bought some of their equipment to do it as the BIA was getting out of the research portion of it in-house. They were going to sub it out to other people. So we were doing a lot of it. And I got to learn a lot about brick masonry that I wouldn't have known another way. But they actually had a union mason who would build the walls for them. And talking to that guy was unbelievable. We would build a test wall that we were going to we would do, and he'd start putting it together and say, "Well, wait a minute, is this an inspected project or uninspected?" And I would say, "What's the difference?" Well, in an uninspected project, we don't put as much bed mortar under the brick. We kind of furrow it so that there's gaps in it. And we just slop a little bit of uh, mortar on the head joints of the brick and shove them together. But if it's an inspected job, we make sure it's a full bedding in the head joints and on the bed and just, you know, make sure it's a whole big difference if it's an inspected job. I don't like telling you that that's possible, but more than not, it is the truth. So they had two standards. It was one of those things where they would want to test the walls for shear and, you know, compressor strength and all that stuff. And we had to do it both ways. We wanted to do it with a, a, you know, a well-inspected job that, you know, would be done the way it's supposed to be and the way the maybe the Masons were taught to do it and had been doing it all their lives and find out what the result was. And it was, you know, it was interesting that major components— didn't change all that much, major factors. And it's because if the brick sticks well to the mortar, it's more important than compressive strength or anything else. It's it's the binding of the products. It acts like a glue. And that was the philosophy that we were, we were dealing with back then. And in fact, now the Brick Institute has come out and said, stop using such high-strength mortar, such as Type S mortar, which is 1,500 PSI strength mortar. It's not necessary. 
and they recommend using the softest mortar possible, like a type N or something like that, because the strength, the compressor strength isn't what's important. And in fact, those over strength or the higher strength ones tend to shrink more, causing bond breaks and stuff like that. And what you really need is the bond of the mortar to the brick, and that's what's important to the wall. But in this case of this wall that we were moving, not only were there no wall ties, there was hardly any mortar at any of the head joints, and clearly the bed joints were defective. I mean, everything possible could have been wrong, and the wall ties were spaced 20 feet apart if we could even find them. Uh, it's interesting. I've heard mortar described as an adhesive and a cushioning between the brick themselves. So if you have an extremely hard brick, you want a fairly soft mortar. So the wall doesn't want to push itself outward. Um, wall tie spacing is always unknown, looking at the wall from the exterior. Without opening a wall section and trying to determine if the wall ties are correct, it's, it's really a crapshoot. Back in the old days, we used to turn brick around and use them to tie the walls in. Correct. The, They're called header courses, and header courses is probably where I've seen the most catastrophic failures, that type of construction. This is the older types of wall before the veneer became out. Correct. Became that was out. typically in the 60s, late 50s. Um, loads transferred typically in that era to a CMU backup wall, which sits on a concrete floor slab. Um, the brick are tied into that. That wall is suspect to creeping outward uh, due to a lot of reasons, mostly lack of horizontal relief joints. The easy way to tell that wall is you'll, you'll see the brick. Normally, you see the side of the brick, and that's called a running or a common bond. But the header brick, all you're seeing is the end of the brick, and there'll be an entire uh, horizontal layer of those going in because they're going into the wall, and that's tying the wall together, right? Correct. I mean— I. Typically, it'll be turned in every seven courses. In some instances, you only see a header course at the floor slab, which technically takes up the load of that entire floor. Uh, below that header course, they'll put a thin brick in to pass the concrete floor slab. There's a lot of problems with that. Loads transferred onto that thin brick, and that thin brick can bow out very easily. And that thin brick is called a soap because they actually it's, just cut it real thin like a bar of soap. They are referred to as soaps, and they could be anywhere from one inch thick to three inches thick, depending on the placement of the floor slab itself. See, I've never seen a wall that I could recall where there was only one row of headers at the floor slab. Typically, and again, this is the BIA and, and all the research I've ever seen, shows that they would be header courses every five to seven courses of brick as you're going up. And an entire wall is going to be at least eight to 10 feet tall, and there has to be some in there. Otherwise, you don't get wall ties at all. Right. That's typical. But later, I guess when horizontal galvanized reinforcement came about, and prior to being galvanized, it was just untreated steel, they would put the header course in the floor slab and then put the horizontal wire reinforcing every seven courses or depending on the spacing of the block itself. And that would tie the wall in. Well, see, I've seen that too, but but the architect liked the the header course layout. And so they put fake headers in as they built the wall, but they'd still put the ties in and have to have the ties right, in for right. that. Yeah, that's not quite as typical, but it's out there. Um, you also had a concern that when we were talking about doing this, you were talking about uh, the corrugated wall ties and some of the problems you had with those. I typically see this on 
low-rise construction, maybe two to three to four stories. They'll put a wall tie in, and the wall tie will not actually grab the brick until the brick moves outward a certain distance. They'll set a wall high, a wall tie in. They'll bend it down and then bend it outward onto the brick. Before that actually grabs, that wall could easily move out an inch, an inch and a half. Interesting. I don't. I can't say that I haven't seen that because I think I have. I just don't recall any specific instances and stuff. The other problem that we've seen, obviously, has kept us in business for a long, and your company as well, are water intrusion issues. And a lot of those water intrusion issues are flashing issues. 90% of them, at least. At least. At least. And what are the typical problems you see with the flashings? The flashings, uh, there's a million different issues that can happen with flashings. Not properly installed, not installed at all, not end-dammed not extended far enough out, um, not properly weeped, uh, and not a clear cavity for the water that penetrates the facade to get down to the flashings and be discharged. All right, well, let's go through this for a second. So even though they're required by code, you've, you've seen and I have seen, where flashings such as above windows are code required, but they're not installed. Um, depends on, I guess, the time of the the time the building was built. I'm not sure whether they're code required or not, but you know, there's plenty of them that have did not have flashings installed above the windows. All right. Well, I will tell you that the code has always been very clear <laughs> about for a number of years now, going back even into the '60s, about installing flashings to make the building not leak. Very possible. I'm 68, <laughs> so I'm not sure when the codes came about. <laughs> well, there were times where there were no codes too. True. So that, we get that. Then the other thing you mentioned was end dams. You want to explain end damming? Yeah, end damming is where you collect that water, whether the flashings terminate at a window uh, or any kind of penetration through the wall to keep it from migrating horizontally. It discharges the water outward. Um, again, they're fairly new uh, on some buildings. Even if they are there, they're not properly installed. Uh, and it, it just allows water to spill off into the interior of the building. Well, I've probably seen hundreds of instances of flashings not end damped, and they're basically useless because all they're doing is dumping the water into the wall, creating a leak in the building and all that, and I don't understand how masons cannot know to end dam these things. Masons typically want to lay brick in a wall as neat as they can and as fast as they can. Their concern is the wall looks good. They get a certain amount of brick in the wall a day. Um, flashings, wall ties are not high on their priority list. They're paid to lay brick. They're paid to lay brick. And as Joe had stated earlier, the lack of uh, mortar on the bed joints and vertical head joints, to fill them properly, when you set the brick, it squeezes mortar out. And that tends to spill onto the face of the brick and make the final brick cleaning harder to accomplish. Bricklayers want to be able to walk away from that wall without hardly having to clean it at all when they're done. And they don't mind dumping stuff in the cavity to do that. Well, they don't want mortar to go anywhere, but they're not concerned about water or, excuse me, mortar going into the cavity of the wall either. Not too much. You want to tell that story about your brother-in-law? Well, I have a brother that's a union bricklayer in the Philadelphia area, was trained through the unions, has laid brick his entire life. He just recently has heard about end dams, <laughs> which kind of surprised me. 
And then I talked to him about keeping the cavity clean, and he had a couple thoughts on that also. Um, he seemed to be fairly in tune with that, but you, you sometimes wonder. Yeah, well, I mean, those things can happen. And that was the point with this Mason that we had working for me in my other life. He says that's, that's all they, they were taught how to lay brick, not how to install wall ties, not how to install flashings and those types of things. We also talked about wee poles. Right now, um, the current brick industry of America recommendations are to leave open head joints above the flashings. And it's okay to fill them with those cell vents made of plastic for the most part. Uh, I think you can make them with other things too, though. But the, the plastic ones are the ones that have a lot of popularity because they're colored. And so they can kind of blend in with the mortar color a little bit. Uh, but they don't want tubes anymore. We used to do, you know, see tubes always being done, those little plastic tubes coming out. And the problems with that were what? Well, plastic, I've seen everything from plastic tubes, which is a piece of plastic tubing, to even straws installed into walls, pieces of plastic straws. Um, then it led to copper rope weeps, or excuse me, cotton rope weeps. Cotton, yeah. Which would wick water as opposed to a nylon piece of rope. Those tend to clog very easily. Um, and again, if water can't get down to them due to an unclear cavity or improper flashings, they're kind of worthless. The cell vents appear to be fairly good. Um, the open head joints, I've heard of uh, concerns with insect infiltration into the cavity. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. And so, they get clogged because they nest inside their lay eggs and, and they're, right, you know, they're backing right, up water. Right. So... At the time I worked, it seemed the most uh, commonly used thing were the cell vents, the preformed cell vents, yeah. which, like you said, come colored. They're in the size of a head joint. They're inserted into the wall. And uh, if everything else is correct, they should drain the wall adequately. The other thing that's come up a lot now are these mortar nets that they're putting in above the flashings. And they're designed so that even if they drop mortar down into the cavity— it doesn't clog the entire cavity. They may fall on top of the mortar net, but the mortar net stands up and down and up and down and up and down so that you still have a path for the water to get down. And I, I think that's everybody's using that now. Yeah, the mortar nets were a good idea. If, if, if they only extend about a foot up from the flashings and mortar continues to fall into the cavity, I think you still have the potential to water to transfer over to the backup walls. That's my concern with mortar netting. Ideally, you would mortar net it the entire height of the building, but I don't believe I've ever seen that. No, no, I, I haven't seen it either, but I think this is one thing that's being done to improve the situation. But I do think some cases, and I've seen this, because the mortar net's there, the masons even get sloppier. Could be. Could because be. they say, ah, I got the mortar net down there, so I just throw the mortar in and I'm not caring about, you know, trying to keep the cavity clean. Yeah, I mean, ideally, on a veneer you would totally waterproof the backup wall the entire height of the building, which could only cost, I don't know, a couple dollars a square foot. Probably with these spray-to-applied things, and we're seeing it more and more too, and I think that's becoming the standard because in place of a building wrap or some other type of paper to shield the backup material, they're doing it with these spray-to-applied products that act as a vapor and moisture barrier and, and all kinds of things. And I agree, that's really the way to go. That covers a lot of sins. Oh, absolutely does. Um, not only that, um, the potential for 
construction damage of those components prior to the bricklayer even arriving, you see happen quite often. So, in a parting word of wisdom to property managers and building owners and stuff, what's your advice for them to take a look at their buildings and try and head off potential problems and things like that? Right. You you just need to pay attention to the building. I mean, if you look up and you see ceiling broken against window frames, uh, stretched out extensively, that gives you a sign the wall is moving. If you see spalled brick, uh, small pieces of brick on the ground, mortar on the ground, you potentially have an issue. Uh, Sealants compressed in these vertical and horizontal control joints is another clue that some maintenance may need to be done. And likewise, obviously, if seeing cracks or staining and things like that, those are obvious indications that there's a problem that need to be addressed. You would think. You would think that you understand that. Thanks very much, Jay. Appreciate your time. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Technically Speaking. To learn more about ETC, its engineering and building envelope services, please visit our website at www.etc-web.com.